welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I am David Kern, and I am joined for this new book by Heidi White and Tim McIntosh. Heidi and Tim, welcome back to the show. How's it going? <laughs> There's the tense pause waiting for Tim. We were just teasing that, that Tim has a way of, um, there's a dramatic pause whenever Tim gets asked how he's doing, which either it's because he's an actor or because he's not sure. I'm not sure which one it is. Tim, how sure are you about how you're feeling right now? <laughs> I, David, I feel confident about how I feel. See, I just added one in. I just added a little mm-hmm. dramatic pause in. Your own I, dramatic. I, I've never been aware that I do that. <laughs> and But I... Clearly, I guess I do. I guess I do do that. <laughs> you have gained a droplet of self-knowledge today. Of self. Thank you. It, you would think that King Lear would have done it for me, but it clearly did not. I, I missed up on that drop of that fire hydrant of self-knowledge in King Lear. Well, I mean, this is a very specific piece of self-knowledge, so it's not necessarily the case that King Lear would have drawn it out. Um, Heidi, how about you? What, what droplets um, I, of self-knowledge have you gained? <laughs> I'm li- I'm waiting for you guys to give me my droplets of self-knowledge for the day. So if at any point you want to jump in and point something out about me, I'll receive it. But I'm doing great. I just got back from England and I am had a lovely time. And I read The Power and the Glory while I was out there for the 50th time. And can't wait to talk about it. Have you really read it? With great no, frequency, Heidi? that was hyperbole. I'm sure I've not read it 50 times, but I've probably read it seven times. Oh, have you really? Yeah, I love this book. This is my top five favorite novels. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Tim, how many times have you read it? I'm on my third. Okay. So, um, yeah, we are here to talk about The Power and the Glory. We're going to do that over the next few weeks. This is Graham Greene's novel. We're going to talk a little bit about Graham Greene here in a minute. Before we dive in all the way, though, let's say a quick word from our friends over at Belmont Abbey College, a Catholic Benedict. Hey, it's a Catholic college when we're doing a Catholic novelist. Perfect. Perfect. That's, that's um, appropriate. I wonder if they read it there. And fun. That's a good question. I bet. And completely mm-hmm. unintentional. Well, actually, I don't know that. I don't know that it's unintentional. I didn't know about it, though. So anyway, Belmont <laughs> Abbey College is a Catholic Benedictine college near Charlotte, North Carolina, not too far from here which has just launched a new honors college. This distinctive program prepares students for an exceptional career through a flexible, robust, great books education. The curriculum focuses on the great conversation among the most influential ancient Christian and modern authors, so they probably do Graham Greene, and culminates in a unique senior year dedicated to considering various crises in the West. Students can choose four years of study committed exclusively to the great books or elect a traditional major while still taking a substantive great books core. Honor students will study abroad in Ireland or Italy and foster lasting friendships centered around the shared pursuit of truth. A scholarship covering nearly half of the college's tuition is included. For more information, visit belmontabbeycollege.edu slash greatbooks. Again, that's belmontabbeycollege.edu slash greatbooks. A life well-lived awaits at Belmont Abbey College. So thanks to them for, for sponsoring and making this show happen this month and again it is appropriate that they are sponsoring while we were reading graham green because he is um considered um certainly on the mount rushmore of the catholic novelists although my understanding is he did not appreciate being described as a roman catholic novelist and preferred to be known as a, a novelist who happened to be catholic um have you read any of his other work 
Heidi, you've read this book like 50 times, you said. <laughs> so have you read, have you read, say, Brighton Rock or The End of the Affair or The Quiet American or The Confidential Agent or The Third Man? He has a lot. Of, he's written a host of novels. I have read The End of the Affair, The Quiet American, and Travels with My Aunt. Tim, what about you? I failed to complete Our Man in Havana. I have read The End of the Affair and obviously The Power and the Glory. Okay. So no Brighton Rock readers amongst us. I haven't read that one either. No. Mm -mm. It has a good reputation. Why have we not read this? Yeah, it's a good, great question. Uh, only so much There's time so I many can... books to read. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Neither of you have read The Third Man? No. No, but I know it's a great movie. This, is a, of this is a travesty. This, this is, I know, I'm ashamed fact, of myself. Leave the show now. This is, <laughs> leave the show now and go read. It's a novella. It won't take you about as long as it would to record this show, probably. Um, it's great. You should read it. He actually wrote the novel as a treatment because he got hired to write a screenplay, basically. Or he wrote a treatment on the screenplay. And then as he was working out the screenplay, he just decided to write a novel because that's what Graham Greene did. Just on a whim, as part of an exercise, wrote a great novel. Um, that's amazing. He, he wrote these very sort of intense novels with deep, you know, religious themes. But he also is known as someone who wrote very intriguing international espionage novels. So you've got The Confidential Agent, which is considered one of the great spy, the great early spy novels, especially. Um, the Quiet American is a Vietnam novel. Um, he wrote um, a number of what he called uh, entertainments, books that he, well, he wasn't necessarily trying to... to um, write high, high, um, like capital L literature, you know? Um, yeah. he was trying to, to tell great stories and he just accidentally, well, I don't know if it was accidentally, but because he was so good, he managed to write thrillers of great literary merit. So I highly recommend the confidential agent, the third man. Um, I guess the comedians falls into that. Um, so if you're interested in those, check those out. But the the his Catholic novels are sort of considered. I've I've heard it referred to as, or I've heard them referred to as the gold standard. And so those four novels would be Bright and Rock, The Power and the Glory, The Heart of the Matter, and The End of the Affair. Hmm. Um, so I think The Power and the Glory is generally considered his masterpiece. Uh, John Updike mm -hmm. called it that. Um, and some of you may have copies with a John Updike introduction. I think if you have the penguin classics copy you'll have the version that has that's what i have and an it's very good by him. i recommend it the introduction of that particular edition yeah it's good <laughs> okay so this book was written in 1940 i believe first published in in, in great britain in 1940 um when did you first read it heidi what about you first read it i read it first in my early 20s and just every few years after that. Tim, what about you? I think I also read it in my early 20s. I might have even read it as an assignment in college. And I read it again a few years ago because I remember being really affected by it when I first read it. Um, and so I went back to it and I thought, oh, that's why I was so affected by that novel. Because it's really good. Mm. So did you guys know what the original title of this, well, the, oh, not the original, but the way that the initial title of this book when it was published in the U.S.? I did not know that until I, I have the same version that you guys have. 
I did not know that until I read that in John Updike's Forward. So that the, was interesting. Yeah, in the U.S., it was initially published under the title "The Labyrinthine Ways," which I can honestly see why they kept the power and the glory when they published it. Again. <laughs> um, because that word is so hard to say, David. Is that is that why? The Labyrinthine Ways is is uh, a mouthful, but it uh, yeah, it, it doesn't it. It doesn't seem right. It just doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel right. It's kind of preachy, I think. <laughs> yeah. So um, if, quickly, this novel, 1941, received the Hawthornden Prize, British Literary Award, and it's been routinely chosen as one of the best English language novels ever, at least during the 20th century. Um, he's Graham Greene is typically put up there with Waugh, Flannery O'Connor, um, a few others as sort of the the Mount Rushmore of Catholic, uh, Catholic novelists during that, during that century. Um, do you, hey, can I ask a question? Can I ask a question? Yeah. Are you guys a little bit, Heidi, I know that you weren't in on the Flannery O'Connor, um, stories, but <laughs> it, it seemed like the close reads listenership took a while to warm up to Flannery O'Connor. Those who are not, you know, familiar with her. As I was rereading this, I thought, oh, we might have to go through that process again. I mean, it's <laughs> for, for different reasons. The story does not begin with a lot of sunlight and unicorns and little fleecy clouds. There's just I not I would like much to know what novels you're that. reading that begin with those things. I, I very <laughs> I don't know that I can come up with any. I'm pretty but sure that those are books it's... for seven-year-old girls. <laughs> maybe so. Um, boy, the power and the glory. I felt. I felt like. Well, I'm maybe getting ahead of ourselves, but I felt like Mexico was a character, a, a, a menacing oh, yeah. character in yes. the book. And yes, you're getting ahead of us. You're getting ahead of uh, me, Tim. Quickly, <laughs> before we get to that, though, I do. I'm really curious. I'm curious. Um, not. I mean, it's a, it's a, you're making a great point, Tim. I, I don't want to discourage you from talking further on this show, no. but I do want to, I want to, I want to work our way there. So, yeah. Um, did you, when you first read this find, or, or when you reread it, do you find that it's hard to settle in to the way he writes? Yeah. That's a common thing that I hear about Graham Greene's novels that, that it, it's like disorienting in a way. It's just, it's difficult to, you don't just read the first paragraph and sort of, fall into it and the rhythms and everything you kind of become one with them become one with them do you do where where do where did you stand when you first read that where do you stand now rereading it as far as his his uh the way he writes this sort of the settling in shall, shall we say mm -hmm. Heidi, what about you uh, i think that's a really great question and particularly relevant with graham green because i I mean, I've read this novel so many times that I just kind of, I get it, but I'm curious. I'm, I'm curious how I would feel reading one that I haven't read. So maybe I'll pick one up this week or something that I, that I haven't read because I do remember feeling like you said, disoriented is a really good word. He kind of begins in media rest. Like he just kind of jumps in and there's, all of these very rich images that you could tell mean something like the vultures, for example, which it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out vultures and deaths and to make that connection. But I, I do remember the first time I read this book, not having any clue what I was reading. 
like no clue at all for a long, long time, uh, which is partly, I think, because of my religious background. I had no, no, I was evangelical at the time and had no connection to any kind of vision for the sacramental, or I didn't understand what a priest did or what the, or, you know, why he valued the sacrament so much. I, I, I didn't know what the priest was talking about. Um, and so you do have to have, I, I do think this is one of those novels that does benefit from a little bit of research, hmm. uh, even from the very beginning, um, just even a quick Google of something on Schmoop or it, it, any of those, I think does have something to offer specifically for Graham Greene because he has such a specialized language and voice. So hmm. yes, I think he is disorienting to read at first, but once you have that kind of uh, some tools in your tool chest to understand it, then I think it, it opens up. Mm. Uh, Tim, well, so what about you? Do you, I mean, do you, do you feel the same way? Do you feel that, do you find it disorienting to jump in and out of Graham Greene? I've, I personally, th- that's the biggest thing for me is when I'm reading one thing and going to the next, the, I, as I'm reading Greene, I can get into it, but then it's the jumping around. Like if I, if I read a different book or I'm doing, reading something else for work or whatever, when I go back to Greene, it's, it's disorienting in some ways. Why so, David? I mean, I find him disorienting. I wonder if we find him disorienting for the same reasons. Well, I, I think part, I think, I mean, he's, I think Graham Greene, as much as anybody trades in subtext. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, and, yeah. And some, and there's a lot of subtext, even in the syntactical choices that he's making. You know, if you, for people who love uh, sort of the craft of scene setting, um, I think there's a lot going on. The craft for him, tone and mood is is all there, um, and a lot of it is it, he. Well, we'll get into this when we talk about the the place, but I think that's a big part of it. Is a lot of the tone and the mood is sort of subtextual. Like he creates scene, not so much by describing, but making you feel of the place. Yeah, and that's both in how he chooses to write his sentences, and, and also how he chooses to to reveal. Um, you know, what would otherwise by most novelists be revealed by description, he reveals in a sort of more subtextual sort of roundabout way. And I think that that can be disorienting, but also uh, is one of the things that makes him a genius and makes his books linger, you know, like you feel them deeply. And yeah. it's, it's, it's less, it's more a feeling, a sort of sensory experience in a way. It's a much more imaginative experience, so we say, than it is in an intellectual experience when you're, when yeah. you're in a Graham Greene scene. Does that, is that kind of getting at what it's like for you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think your words were perfect. I also feel like the point of view, I don't want yep. to say that the point yeah. of view changes, but it, it, it's, it's not a long, continuous voice from one or two characters. It seems like the voice, it jumps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was thinking a lot about that when I was reading these first couple of chapters, the idea of it's, I, I, I think you, I, I was trying to figure if it's voice that is disorienting or if it's like narrative perspective. That's Yeah. Know, point of view. The, yeah. Point of, is there a, what's the, what's the difference there? So I was thinking a lot about that. Like what, what is that he's trying to do? So I think that's worth kind of keeping an eye on, especially in chapter two there. But, you know, chapter one kind of has one long scene and then chapter two has a bunch of different characters that get introduced. And that yeah. kind of, that's a little disorienting as well. Yeah. Um, let's, let's just look right away. Well, you know what? Let's do this. 
let's give a what is the scenario Heidi can you give us mm. you've read it like 50 times so <laughs> you should have it memorized so can you just give us the basic scenario the basic setup as this novel is beginning since you know sure. for some people in chapter you, one yeah so for some people you a lot of it is just getting so inundated by everything and by that tone and that mood and all that sensory stuff so if you can kind of break it down for us and say this is what the basic scenario is that we're dealing with in these first you know at the end of these first couple of chapters sure uh, so in chapter one, the the framing of this story begins with Mr. Tench, who's a dentist, and he has gone out of his home in the heat uh, in a Mexican port town. I can't remember if we find out what town it is in this chapter, but it doesn't. Uh, anyway, he, he goes out and he is looking for an ether cylinder, and along the way, he keeps forgetting what he's doing. And, um, and then he meets a stranger dressed in black who speaks English. And Mr. Tench is drawn to this man, partly because of English and partly for some reason he can't quite name, but he invites him back for a drink and he wants this man, he wants brandy. So they have a drink together and, uh, towards, and at the end of the chapter, a child shows up, says his mother is sick and he's looking for a doctor. And the stranger goes with this child, um, even though Mr. Tench says he can be of no use. And and so doing the man who is waiting for a boat misses the boat. And that is the entire thing that happened. Now, as you said, David, there is an immense, I mean, an immense amount of subtext to everything that I just said. <laughs> um, yeah, when we'll get to that. You don't need to. Yes, <laughs> that's the situation. Yeah. That's what's happening. One of the things that's interesting, I think, is that, you know, for people who don't know, who haven't read Farther, I mean, they, that that second character is our main, mm-hmm. is essentially our main character. So going to that perspective idea, the, the point of view idea, it seems like Tench is going to be our yes, protagonist. protagonist. Mm-hmm. But then mm-hmm. he meets this other guy, and then you're not really even in that guy's head. And then that guy disappears for most of chapter two. You get introduced to the lieutenant. But then at the end of chapter two, it gets all of a sudden back in that guy's head for like what a paragraph or something. Is that is that right? Yes. Am I thinking remembering that right? Yes. So which to to your point that you made, Tim, that both of you that that there is that jumping around. You're behind yeah. the eyes of one character. And while you're behind the eyes of that character, it's very intense and there's a lot of emotion. Mm. Uh, but you can't quite connect it yet to the situation because all that's happening, right, is that there's this dentist looking for ether and meets another so there's there's so much emotion that you're feeling behind the eyes of these characters but you're not really sure why yet what's going on you can't connect it with yeah. anything, which can be as you said disorienting and the other character the stranger that mr tench the dentist is speaking to he seems very opaque like it's mm-hmm. hard it's like you're like where is he? What is he? What is his story? What is he doing? And yes. Green gives you very, very little about that. Hmm. Yeah, I think, I think the Tench seems to not know. You know, Heidi mentioned that he's forgetting what he's looking for a lot, and so I think it calls mm-hmm. into question even his own trustworthiness. And so it, uh-huh. sometimes it, it seems to it seems hard to know what to think of 
the stranger, you know, who ultimately is, is the priest, the whiskey priest. So um, it, it, that's an interesting choice by Graham Greene to introduce that character in a way that we're not actually sure what to think of him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you, why do you think he, I mean, what's the, what's the effect of that other than that we don't know what to think of it? I mean, that's the obvious effect, but in the long term, how, what do you think of that choice? Like, what do you make of it? Well, it draws you in, it makes you want to know who he is. There's a, there's a mystery to him. And that's, that carries throughout the story in a way that's quite haunting from the very beginning that I think wouldn't have been as effective if, um, if he had made a different choice and put you behind the eyes of the priest from the yeah. beginning. You begin yeah. from the very beginning, you see that this man, however small, however unassuming, that he has an impact on everybody with who he is around throughout the story. You see that from the very, very beginning in a way that you wouldn't end if you were behind his eyes. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, so before we get into, you know, Tim, I definitely I have written down here that we need to talk about the idea of the place as character. Um, yeah, I would. I would love to hear from both of you, though, as people who have read this novel like fifty times, um, <laughs> and who like you know like it a lot and and know it, and, and also read some other Graham Greene. I mean, I don't normally ask this, you know, about a book unless it's like Shakespeare or something. But do you have do you have any advice for for people who are reading? this novel or or reading Graham Greene in general like what what advice would you what for you know I guess a way of putting it is what are the what's the strategy like how, how do you recommend people approach a book like this like what things what should they look for is there is there how, how do you read a book like this actively is there is it different than reading you know anything else that's that is a great question and I'm glad you asked that I think that yes I do like I said I think that Graham Greene does Uh, benefit from some research. Um, But then as we get, I'm sure it will come as no surprise to the listeners uh, and those who are reading with us from the tone of the first chapter of this book, if you haven't read it before, and if you're not familiar with Green, that there's, as, as Tim brought up, this is a modern novel. This is a, a relentlessly sad book. Mm. A, however, my advice is don't give up on this book. Yes, I get it. Echo that. <laughs> yes. Uh, this book is, I mean, look for, look, look for this. I, as, as we get into this novel and you encounter the sadness in this culture and, and in the hearts of the people that we meet, and you're just waiting and waiting and waiting for something good to happen to them. And it just keeps getting darker. This, like there is because of the sadness of this book. And this is true. I think for everything that I've read in, in Graham Greene, that, that the grace and the mercy that he is inviting people to encounter through this story needs a very dark backdrop in order mm. for it to be as dazzling as it is. So don't give up. I know we have a lot of listeners who, oh, these books are sad. Why are we reading them? So in reading Green, you are reading a book about grace. Always. There's always grace in Graham Green. And but the background of the grace is always very, very dark. So, but he's trying to go to the heart of something. 
So that I would say, trace the characters, trace the situations to the heart. Um, and that would be my advice for reading them. And then go ahead and do some, some research. You're not going to spoil anything by doing, by doing that. Heidi, what would you have them, if they're going to Google, you know, a few words, what are the words that you would want them to Google? Oh, that's a great question. Um, let me think about like that for about, a minute. About yeah. this book? Yeah. Yeah. About this book. Uh, well, so I'm one. Go ahead. No, he asked you the question. So you, you, yeah, I, but I don't have an answer. I don't have an answer right off the bat. And it sounded like you had something to say. Well, I don't have a specific answer to that question, but I will say that even something like, I mean, so one of the things that I think is, if you look at Wikipedia, for example, it talks about a little bit of the composition of this book. And I have a biography of Graham Greene. I think it's called In Search for Graham Greene or something. Um, and it talks about this at greater length than Wikipedia will. So if you want to learn more about him, you can check that out. But one of the reasons this book, the idea, again, I think this, I think the hopefulness in, in Graham Greene lies in the subtext. I think that yes. it's not just, it's not just like the themes lie in the subtext, but I think that the worldview, so to speak, if I can borrow mm -hmm. that, if I can appropriate that term for this conversation, the worldview that Greene is espousing to his faith itself is, is, is buried in the subtext, not buried in the sense that he's trying to hide it, but buried in the sense that, it, it doesn't necessarily reveal itself just right off the bat. Um, it has, it's like, you know, it's, it's, a, it's not even a slow burn. It's, um, it, it's earned, you know, that the, the hopefulness is earned. It, it doesn't come, it's not trite. And so one of the things that I think if you, if you need some motivation to continue, some of the background of the book I think is useful. So Green, he, he was going to write a nonfiction account of, the persecution of the Catholic Church in Mexico, and he was he went there, uh, he went in 1938 to go um, to go write about that and the perse persecution of the Catholic Church. I think it was the region of Tabasco or something, and I only remember that because the mm -hmm. yes, that's right. Um, because pretty, of the sauce, yeah, yeah that's yeah, true. It, it was pretty bad. There. So he goes he he goes there and he published. I think he ended up writing this in in something that was published, you know, in the 30s or 40s, late 30s or 40s, um, and. So he he got criticized for seeming like he didn't like the place at all. Um, and so some of that might come out in The Power and the Glory. But he also wrote, he also said much, much later that it was being there that led him to become a Christian. It was where mm -hmm. he started becoming a Christian um, mm -hmm. because he saw the faithfulness of the people who lived there um, as as he was moved by their faithfulness, despite the, the stakes, despite what they were up against. So that's, you know, the, that I think is um, the, his journey um, towards faith because of the things that he saw, I think is buried in the subtext. And I think there's a hopefulness there that is, that might motivate people to continue, to continue reading. Mm -hmm. I think that's really good. Well, and in this specific book, I would say part of what's something that's very helpful in um, kind of decoding, if I can use such a word, and <laughs> uh, is that um, look for the impact that the priest makes on the people he encounters. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I'm going to throw out a quote that I, I read this week in a devotional book it had nothing to do with power and the glory. And I read this quote and I thought that this is the power and the glory condensed down to these two sentences. Um, 
This is a quote from a, an anonymous Russian priest upon his release from the gulag, from a prison camp. Uh, and he said this, um, when asked about his experience, his reply was, suffering has destroyed all things. One thing alone has stood firm, and it is love. Hmm. And I, I think that that is at the very heart of the book. And so as you're going through, look for what suffering destroys and look for what love can and does and then doesn't redeem, right? Look for those, look for those who re reject the redemption of love and look for those who are impacted by it. Mm. Uh, including in the heart of the priest himself, who is no hero, which is what makes this book so delightful and wonderful, right? He is this. And in the beginning of the book, one image I think is so powerful. And again, to your point about subtext, David, if you're not paying attention, completely miss this, that um, everything matters in Graham Greene, everything. Like don't skip the description. Don't skip the, you know, you know, some people read and they like, don't, don't bother to read carefully the descriptions. They just skip yeah. to the dialogue or whatever. Um, some books you can do that. You cannot do that in green without missing something really important. So the stranger who turns out to be the priest, he has a book with him. Uh, and the book has the cover of like a lurid romance and Mr. Tench is judgmental of him for it. Mm -hmm. Like, look at that. What's that guy reading? Right. And it has like a woman throwing herself, you know, you picture her kind of busty, right. Throwing herself at the feet of a man. And the title of the book is La Eterna Martyr, which translates to the eternal martyr. Right. So there's an, a wealth in that <laughs> little image and inside the book, it's not actually a lurid romance. It's a breviary. So it's daily readings of scripture for, a, for the, the priest leaves behind in Latin, right? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. That's exactly right. So, but it's disguised. It's a breviary disguised as a romance with the title of martyrdom. Like there's just so much in that little image. <laughs> yeah. Like so that's you know, kind of look for those things that say this is a complicated, there is a an interweaving of suffering and love uh throughout this novel that's just so beautifully hard to untangle. It's not simple, it's very complicated. And and entering into that, I think, is very transforming for the reader, but it's an emotional experience. And just let it be hard. Like, let it be hard to read. That's the whole point. Yeah. Hmm. You know, I don't, I, Graham doesn't, is for as sort of challenging as he can be to get into at times and as sad as his books almost always are, he's not the kind of writer who, like, he's kind of a classical writer in the sense that he doesn't, he, he tells you what his books are about. He just mm -hmm. doesn't, you know, like, it's not like he's trying to hide his themes. He, you know, he's not burying them in Latin. <laughs> um, exactly. I mean, in this case, he literally is, but he's, you know, he's, he, he's, uh, <laughs> he's, um, he's telling you what they are. He's just not telling you them by naming them. He's telling you by calling on your imagination. And he's because, you know, he's hoping that the sensory, the sensory experience of it is going to, you know, cause them to be embedded more, more deeply. So, you know, even the, you know, the metaphor of the vultures, right. In some ways it feels a little heavy handed there at the very beginning. Right. Yes. Uh, and, but, but that, and that's where I say he's, you know, there's something sort of 
pre-modern about the way he's writing. Like a lot of modern people would be like, well, that's that's a little heavy-handed, right? That's a little on the nose. But right. the theme, you know, he's 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 kind of trading in those themes, but he's, you know, he's he's not doing it in a way that's um you know, maybe it's not subtle. It, that particular those particular themes, those images aren't subtle. But the the things that they do to the people in the books, I think, are more subtle. Um, and mm-hmm. what it does to you as a reader, I think, is more subtle. Um, mm-hmm. And that's why you know, even even underneath the theme, there's the subtext underneath that subtext. <laughs> Which, so, um, right. That's and that's there was a. I was going to tie that back to what you were just saying. I had an actual thing I was trying to say, but I kind of forgot. So, um, Tim, say something now. <laughs> I'm going to play off something that Heidi said that the darkness um, of the book is a way of bringing out the kind of like the brilliance of the grace in the book. And I think it might be helpful for readers to think about um, a comparison with Flannery O'Connor. I'm thinking of her because I think of Catholic writers in the 20th century. I think Graham Greene, I think Flannery O'Connor, I think, what Flannery O'Connor does is Flannery O'Connor uses violence to highlight grace. I think mm. that um, Graham Greene uses maybe sadness or maybe um, maybe boredom characters that are really world weary and almost cynical. He uses grace is juxtaposed with them as yes. opposed to you know this this Appalachian hillbilly who gets the Holy Ghost tattooed on his back and it's just this tremendously violent act of getting this tattoo. That's not what Graham Greene does. That's what that's what Flannery Connor does. But both of those things, both the violence and the cynicism are used to kind of bring up that God's operative grace is is taking place in this way that you would never have expected, but it's happening. Hmm. Yeah, that's great. That's really good. Well, and I think also um, part of the craft of what Green is doing that can be confusing to readers, but I say, hang in there. Uh, I'm, I have an article I'm going to post on Facebook. I sent it to David and I think he said he was going to put it in the weekly email, the close reads email, but I'll post it on Facebook yeah, that's too. Gonna, that's going to go up today or tomorrow. So that's before an that, excellent that's article. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll just, I'll just link it on Facebook too. If anybody's interested in it, uh, it has a, a whole section on one of the things that, that green does on his craft, uh, and called delayed decoding, which is comes from a, um, a literary critic named Ian Watt, that he's the one who named this. And it's different from foreshadowing, but Green does this a lot. It's when a writer gives first an effect uh, of some kind of situation and then only later gives you the cause of that. And I'll give you the example that um, the author of this, uh, or the writer of, of this article that I'm going to post used, and it's in the first chapter. And it's when you find out in the very, I think it's on the very first page that uh, the church, that there used to be a church, but now there's a state treasury, uh, which is just kind of put into a clause in a sentence. So if you're paying attention, if you're you're going to be thinking to yourself, well, I wonder why there's a state, why there's a treasury in a church. And then only later you find out that that's because there's been this communist takeover in this area. And so now if you're looking for subtext, 
the money changers have been put back into the temples, mm. right? Mm. Right. So from the very beginning, you're getting these clues. But if you're a reader who wants to know the causes before the effects, you might be frustrated by green because you're going to have to pay attention. You'll see some things and you'll say, I wonder what's going on here. Why doesn't he tell us? He will tell us. He will get back to it, but he does it in a way that increases the mystery. And that's part of the craft of what he's writing, right? So, so don't get lost. It isn't that you missed something. It's that he is requiring the reader to do some decoding and to wait for some, some plot points to be revealed as he goes, but he will bring things back around. Mm. Yeah. I love that. That, I guess that's an example of the subtext, right? Because it's yes. a very, like you could easily miss it. Mr. Tench went sweating by past the treasury, which had once been a church towards the quay. And he just kind of keeps on going. Mm-hmm. So just the scene just keeps going. So he'll drop that little, that little line in there, which seems like a throwaway. And as you said, you have to pay attention to, to all that. If you're going to read Graham Greene closely. Right. Right. But it does contribute to the mood, right? Cause even if you're not paying attention, even if you're just reading casually, your mind, your brain still picks that up and yeah. it does something to create the mood and the tone of the story, which is so important in all modern novels, but definitely in green. There's something that you're feeling as you read it. And that, that delayed decoding, all that subtext, those kinds of things, your, your mind is putting those things together. But if you want the answers neat and pat, you're not going to get them in green, but he will, he will expound on that. That's a great example too, I think, of how he this is a novel about things being disordered, right? Yes. So that's one in a very small little example there, he's revealing his theme, right? He's revealing his theme that this is a place that has been disordered and it's and it's about people who are trying to function within that place. Yes. And he can he can just reveal that, you know. He reveals it in many ways, but he reveals it in particular in that one little it's just another example of something being out of order of something being you know um being broken mm-hmm. um and that's mirroring you know that that's happening with the vultures as well it's mirroring what's going on inside of of tension i think that's goes back to what you're saying about why he started the book with Tench as opposed to starting it with the actual characters who are sort of our main characters mm-hmm. so that's that brings us to the conversation that tim wants to talk about and I think we both, <laughs> this place is character, Mexico, mm-hmm. Mexico, um, the region of Tabasco as a character. Tim, what did you mean by that exactly? That the place is a character. It, it feels like the atmosphere of Tabasco is um, infiltrating every scene. It's not providing the backdrop for every scene for the character to action for the, for the characters to take action. It feels like the action is in some ways like inflicted upon the characters mm-hmm. and I'm overstating it a little bit, but not that much. I mean, the heat yeah. is oppressive. The, the beetles are exploding against the wall. There's constant and, um, when green kind of sets up a sets up a scene um i'm thinking of the beetles he'll have you know the beetles exploding against the wall um while a character is sitting inside this room and the beetles keep exploding against the wall it doesn't he doesn't just set up the scene and 
you know, let it unwind like a clock. He sets up the scene and, and he keeps hitting this. There's something within that scene that keeps infiltrating the characters' minds, distracting them, annoying them, oppressing them. So that's, that's what I mean. Mexico feels like a character. Mm-hmm. Um, go ahead, go ahead. Well, once I just to talk on to that, I agree with that completely. It's, it is as if the place itself has agency that yeah. it is acting upon the characters and that, and it, it's a very tyrannical kind of agency, but also when, especially this happens, especially once we meet the Lieutenant, right. That we, that not only does it have an agency of tyranny, but also an agency of idealism, right? They, it, the lieutenant believes he is doing good, mm-hmm. and 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 he does do good in a lot of ways throughout the course of this novel. All, and and we haven't met him yet. We don't know much about him. We don't we don't we don't know that yet. But that's the same with with the place. I think that there is this action that this region is taking upon its own people Mm -hmm. that we're constantly trying to sort out. Plus this very bigger than life. uh, Like you said, Tim, the oppressive heat. Yeah. That is such a big deal in this story. Like, and and, I mean, I, I read it and I'm just like, I can't catch my breath sometimes. I know. I know. She so, wondered whether she the, had fever. Her feet felt so cold on the hot ground. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just in every paragraph, there's a reference to 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 Mexico just being such a difficult place to live a daily, to scratch out a daily existence. Right. Well, and there's even a point in the first chapter when the stranger, uh, the priest says, asks him if he's Catholic because he makes that, he says, what does he say? Pray for us in Latin or a pro nobis. And the priest says, oh, are you Catholic? And he says, well, no, I don't believe in that. It's too hot anyway. Yeah. <laughs> right. right? The, the connection between the oppression of the heat and the religious feeling of this man. Like there's mm. so... That is a very, it's a, it has a very profound effect. Everybody is impacted by it, by the place. Yeah. Yeah, So he's doing, so there's a bunch of different little things he does in addition to that. So look at the very, uh, I'm just going to read a few. I'm going to jump around a little Mm -hmm. bit here. Um, um, So here, I'll just read the first few, the first few bits here. Mr. Tench went out to look for his ether cylinder into the blazing Mexican sun and the bleaching dust. So. Like if I was teaching this, one of the things that I would do is mm-hmm. drive Angelina crazy. But one of the things that I would do is as I'm reading certain sections, I would stop and kind of say, well, let's look at what he's doing here. But just mm-hmm. in like a, one paragraph. For, so for example, what I would do there is show how, he, how he's building up the scenario, the scene. Mm. So at the end of that one, he's giving us, okay, so we now know that it's hot, right? He's in Mexico, it's hot and it's dusty, right? That's, that's standard. We get that in any novel, right? That's not new. But then it kind of takes a quick turn. He could have kept going with that about how hot it was, but he doesn't keep talking about that. Instead, he, we get a few vultures look down from the roof with shabby indifference. He wasn't carrying yet. 
So there's, you know, the, the stakes that have changed a little bit. And then a faint feeling of rebellion stirred in Mr. Tench's heart. Okay, so that's a line that we should be noting, right? A faint yes. feeling of rebellion stirred in Mr. Tench's heart. So, and it's, it's when he recognizes the vultures looking down and he says to himself, well, I'm not carrying yet. And then the rebellion stirs in him. So immediately, right? exactly. Immediately the place is beginning to stir something in him. It's beginning to alter him, to to change him a little bit. And then then we start hearing about how his memory, he's losing his memory. He can't remember what he's doing because he's out in the heat. And we all know that. We all know like the, 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 this is not, this is kind of a somewhat, semi-universal experience right how how Mm -hmm. you start to kind of feel drained when you're out in the heat for a long time um so we can identify with that but not to the to this degree then he then it does that thing where he picks up the road to throw it at the vulture as if to say get don't make me think about this right Mm. and it's splintering fingernails have to throw it and he the bird then flies away over the bust of an ex-president ex-general ex-human being um, mm-hmm. yeah, a virtual, the, the, the vulture flying over an ex-human being as in one that is not living is really rich then you get the treasury stuff and then at the bottom of page one if you're in my you know the third paragraph the river went heavily by towards the sea so that you get like the, the way he describes the river there then in that same paragraph memory drained out of him in the heat mm-hmm. he gathered mm-hmm. his bile together and spat forlornly into the sun I mean, that line, memory drained out of him in the heat. Like all the psychological stuff that's going on. Yes. It's not just that he's physically feeling something, but it's like, there's this, we're already getting this sort of spiritual thing, the rebellion, the memory being drained out of him. Um, Right. And And to add one thing, David, what is the um, dentist going to get? He's going to get an ether canister. Yeah, exactly. And what do you do with ether? Is, yeah, Mm -hmm. you, that's how you anesthetize it yourself. Or, or a patient, yeah. I, sh- I should say. Yes. So maybe it's not a surprise then that he forgot. Absolutely. Yeah, maybe it, not. It drained a out of him. constant inability to escape from death and forgetfulness mm. characterizes this entire first chapter. And it is the presence of this stranger that impacts that in some way. Mm. And it's not, to your point, Heidi, it's not this stranger shows up. Um, we've said already, it's the whiskey priest, it's the priest, and joyous feelings of the hopefulness of eternal life shower down upon the people. In in many ways, <laughs> it, it's like it feels like a sword is cleaving things in half more than mm-hmm. like the possibility of grace is arriving. Right. I mean, there are moments right. where we see the possibility of grace arriving, um, especially late in part one. But for the most part, it feels like this stranger is, I don't know, I just have this feeling of, um, yeah, a, a sword cutting things in half, or cutting away dead things. It's not going to be fun. Right. Well, and the, he wants to get away. The stranger wants to leave. Yes. Yeah. I mean, your point is very well taken. There is no, um, yeah. I mean, this isn't, this isn't the story, the, the, the victorious entrance of the saint, mm-hmm. right? It's yeah. this priest that's rotting. His teeth are rotting too. The pre the, the dentist sees death in his mouth when he looks at his teeth He's mm-hmm. got, he's drinking heavily. He's got this lurid 
pornographic novel with him, we think, you know, so there's like, there is not the, the place has had an impact on the priest as well. So there's just this tension, this loggerhead of competing forces that we see in this first chapter and the place to your, to both, to all of our point, the place is preeminent amongst those competing forces. Mm. Right. So another one is they move across. It says they moved across that. Well, he says you should go home. And then he says home. It was a phrase one used to mean four walls behind which one slept. Yeah. Never been a home. They moved across the little burnt plaza where the dead general grew green in the damp and the gaseosa stalls stood under the palms. So like the, the general, the dead general being, he is flown over by the vulture, but he's, the damp is just turning him moldy and breaking him down. And then you get that scene right after that, where they're in the house and they're in his house and they're talking about his teeth. And it says that his teeth were, you know, the, just that sense of rottenness is everywhere. The vultures are looking for the rotting corpses, the, the, the statues rotting in the, in the dampness, the teeth are rotting, the, um, he, you know, he, he even says that, I think, he, how you just said this, that he, that, that Tench is reminded by the priest of a coffin. His sloping shoulders mm-hmm. reminded him uncomfortably of a coffin and death was in his carious mouth already. I mean, that's what happens in the coffin, right? It's about rotten. Yes. <laughs> um, yes. It, so, the, and that's like that sense of disorder again, right? That, you know, things that are, things are not as they should be there. You know, it's like Hamlet, right? <laughs> That's exactly what I was going to say. It's like Hamlet. There's something rotten in the state of and, the story. And, and interestingly, they do consistently refer to the place as a state for what mm-hmm. it's worth. Mm. Yes. That would be well, a stress, Spitting. But. Like if you just, mm. I mean, you can yeah. write a dissertation on spitting in this novel. Like there's constant people feel like there's something wrong with him. Mr. Tench, right? There's something wrong with him. He's got phlegm gathering. There's bile. Mm. He's spitting. Like, it's just this, this gathering of like kind of sticky membranous. Like it's a gross image. It's gross. Like, <laughs> it's not Wendell Berry. This is not Wendell Berry. It, even the ocean, yeah, no. right? The ocean is like sluggish. Yes. Well, and there's there's sharks in the ocean. I was going to point that out. There's, oh yeah. There's no escape, right? You know, you know that the you know that the stranger is waiting for a boat, but somehow you know from the very beginning he's not going to make that boat. And I think it's because he in the very first paragraph, your mind is doing this decoding for us, right? So in the very first paragraph, he says there's vultures over here, but if you go out to the water, there's just going to be sharks. So there is this. There's there's no sense of escape, but the characters are constantly trying to find some kind of escape. And then they're driven to drink, right? Mm. And to, as Mr. Ten, she's looking at this pretty young girl who's on the boat. And yeah, I was and just so looking at there's, she's yeah, singing. there's just, yes. And she's young, you know, the priest says, she's very young. I'm not going to do anything, right? Like that's, there's just this sense of despair, Right, like and that's a really interesting paragraph, by the way. Yeah, go, go ahead, ahead Tim. David. Well, Tim was Tim. Tim. Well, I, I was just I was just going to comment on the um, <laughs> the only happy character we see in the first four chapters is this girl mm. who's singing on the bow of the ship, and what happens? Her, she's the only happy character, and she's taken away on the boat. Hmm. 
it just seems like the little bit of felicity that we have escapes from this this terribly dark oppressive place just she sails off yeah and so right before that it's talking about how sluggish the sea is right or how sluggish the river is making for the sea and he calls after it but it wasn't any good and there's no sign of the cylinder anyway so he's shouting after it because he realizes oh i that he'd forgotten it and it's leaving um and then it says on the general obergon a faint breeze became evident which would probably have been mm. quite, quite relieving um mm. Banana plantations on either side. A few wireless aerials on a port. On a point, the port slipped behind. So, like our perspective has changed. So, because hmm. the, the, the things are slipping away behind the boat, not the boat slipping away from the place. When you looked back, you could not have told that it had ever existed at all. The wide Atlantic opened up. The great gray. So, like, as opposed to the sort of, um, like. Uh, what's the word? I don't know what the word is. <laughs> anyway, d- you know, compared to the like the sort of um, what's the word when you uh, small spaces? <laughs> the claustrophobic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's like a claustrophobic uh, yeah. feel. Yeah, I know. Oh, that. Yeah. I just couldn't. I just couldn't. Yes. My brain wasn't working. So the whole thing <laughs> right. feels claustrophobic. But then it says the Atlantic opened yes. up. The gray, gray cylindrical waves lifted the bows, and the hobbled turkey shifted on the deck, which is very weird. The captain stood mm-hmm. in the tiny deckhouse with a toothpick in his hair. The land went backward at a low, even roll, and the dark came quite suddenly with a sky of low and brilliant stars. So this is actually kind of a nice scene here for a minute, right? One oil mm-hmm. lamp was lit in the bows, and the girl whom Mr. Tench had spotted from the bank began to sing gently, a melancholy, sentimental, and contented song about a rose which had, seen, which had been stained with true love's blood. There, I, this is I marked this. There was an enormous sense of freedom and air upon the Gulf, with the low tropical shoreline buried in darkness. So that all seems nice until it's he says as deeply as any mummy in a tomb. Mm-hmm. I'm happy, mm-hmm. the young girl said to herself without considering why. Yeah. So she, she maybe it's because she's young enough to be happy, right? <laughs> um, yeah. But but even the even the like the what seems like a nice moment you have to shift the perspective you have to be out on the water you have to be away from the land but even there yeah. you look back and the low tropical shoreline is buried in darkness as a mummy in the tomb and then the next paragraph shifts again it, deep deep into that darkness far back inside the darkness the mules plotted on so far back into that mummy into that tomb the the priest is wandering on 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 a donkey to try to help someone. Um, I love that image, the way that he sets that up. The, the, the shifting perspectives there are confusing, but in that, but in that is the subtext, the, the thematic subtext, which is so rich. The idea that back on the land, it's like an equation almost, back on the land is where the darkness is, but the darkness is the tomb. And that's where the priest mm-hmm. is going. He's going deeper into the tomb at the end yeah. of chapter one. Right. Chapter one ends right. with him going further and further into it, like a slave is what he says. Right, right. Exactly. But again, we have just that perspective, right? Because he's a priest. And so if we're looking for coded messages of hope and mercy along the way, how is the world saved, right? It's because of somebody going deeper and deeper into the tomb. Hmm. So there is just this juxtaposition all the time throughout this novel of the perspective of the characters versus what's actually really happening in, in, on a met, in the meta narrative of the journey of this priest. Hmm. 
and and of course it says like the, the stuff about he's he's ostensibly he's going to help someone right so it seems yes. like you say that's kind of noble but all the while he's feeling abandoned right the ship is gone he's going deeper into yep. the tomb he's feeling abandoned he feels an unwilling hatred of the child ahead of him he doesn't want to feel that it's unwilling right right a smell of damp right. came up all around him as if it was as if this part of the world this is amazing the sentence mm-hmm. it was as if this part of the world had never been dried in the flame when the sun spun off into space it had absorbed only the mist and the cloud of those awful regions he began to pray that- bouncing up and down to the lurching slithering mule's stride with his brandy tongue let me be caught soon he prayed let me be caught Oh, it's just so good. I just love this book so much. It's just so beautiful. He's just, he's a drunk priest going off to do his duty, but he hates it. Um, he doesn't want to hate it. But he doesn't, he's, yeah. And he feels abandoned. You know, that abandonment, that sense of abandonment and that sense of unwilling hatred, I think are, in this paragraph, they're tied together as he's going deeper into the darkness. But hmm. that's, I think that's something to look out for. That, that I agree. Between ab- the sense of feeling abandoned and sort of, the, what that does to the way you interact with people around you. Right. You know, what does that well, do and, about how you, do you abandon other people when they abandon you? Right. Well, and there's that little phrase in the middle, and this will come up again and again in this novel that says in the middle of that fantastic transcendent paragraph, he was unworthy of what he carried. And we're going to come back to that over and over and over again. This, that he has something transcendent but he is unworthy of it mm-hmm. and that's connected to the land into i mean who cannot say that right i'm unworthy of what i carry like there's something bigger than me that i'm responsible for but i'm unworthy of it that but, but mm-hmm. i'm going to go into it like right he's going in back into the heart of darkness here mm-hmm. That's, I love this concept of him doing his duty, even though he, he doesn't, he barely believes in it. Yes. You know, he's trying to escape from it. He's drunk. His tongue is brandied. So he's saying, let me be caught. Let me be caught. He's praying while he's drunk. The sort of conflict between doing the duty, Mm -hmm. but not fully believing in why you're doing it. Or I don't know that it's that thematically that I mean that's so complex and yes it's everything. Mm-hmm. If there's you a guys, one of the I, things that's go ahead. You you finish, Heidi. I'm going to slightly change the um, conversation. Okay. Well, I I was going to bring up a quote by Joseph Conrad um, to the point about subtext and the themes and how complex it is. Uh, Joseph Conrad said, which his books are like this. He said, one writes, yeah. only, one writes only half the book. The other half is with the reader. Hmm. And I think that Graham Greene does that in that paragraph you just read and that just the contradictions and the paradoxes in this novel. I mean, is he's a drunk priest hmm. and all he wants to do is get out of there. But and he hates his duty, but he's doing it. So is he a good man? Is he not a good man? Like that's that's the question of this book, right? Yeah. It explores these things. I mean, very, very unapologetically. Like there is no defense of this priest or of this land. Like it is just bare and raw for the reader to say. Like he, Graham Greene, has written half this book 
and the other half is with us. Mm. Are we worthy of what we carry when we read this? What are we seeing in it? What we are, we are made complicit in the contradictions of this book. Mm-hmm. Mm. Tim, I, you can go ahead and, and say what you were going to say. I was, I was going to say, um, it, I think it might be worth before we close the episode, talking a little bit about the Lieutenant, um, the lieutenant is our bad guy. And I think it's really interesting that we get very little interior um, monologue from our protagonist, the priest. We get lots of interior monologue from the the antagonist, the lieutenant. Um, yeah, and so I thought that's movie. really interesting. And one other thing I think that's just worth addressing is this book, like so many books from the late 19th century to little post-World War One, the backdrop is there's a clash between um, the faith, the Christian faith, and uh, communism slash socialism. I, we need to like probably tease out what those words mean because people use the word socialist to describe today Bernie Sanders run for president. And I think that what they mean by Bernie Sanders socialism and what we mean by the Lieutenant socialism and the power and the glory, we might be using the same word. We're talking about two very, very different things. Um, it, it occurred to me when I was rereading this, how little of the Lieutenant's socialism, it, it does not have the sort of um, potency that I know that it did when this book was first published. Like it feels like the the specter of um, a communist takeover of the, of the world is a little bit in the rearview mirror. I'm not trying to be ignorant about um, the power of ideologies in any way, but it does feel like something that. Um, it crumbled a little bit or pretty significantly in 1989 with the Berlin wall. So I wanted to know what you guys thought of the Lieutenant and if his allegiance to that ideology, is it less potent now for you guys since we're reading this, this novel post 1989? I think it's relevant. That's a great question, but I think it's relevant in some ways to how the ideology is shifting even within our own country. And I'm not saying that something like this is eminent. I don't believe it is, but the idea of the defense of a communist or socialist or essentially materialist Marxist Mm -hmm. ideology is creeping into uh, the American public square in a way that it has been roundly rejected in the past. This idea of let's get rid of the churches, let's get rid of spirituality, we're all better off without it. You know, the, the, that, that religion is inherently corrupt, that it's caused most of the problems in the world and that, you know, we can, mm-hmm. we can do better. Like that is very prevalent in the average American citizen right now, especially the young mm-hmm. And, and college campuses like that, that's there. And mm-hmm. so I would say I read this as very relevant to 
you know, I don't, I don't have a doomsday attitude about it. I don't think that we're going to become Mexico and Tabasco, the right. Tabasco region. I'm not saying that I'm not saying run for the Hills, but I am saying that that kind of thinking that the, the way to like kind of idealize materialism is happening in our culture. And, and I think that this is relevant to that. Yeah. I'm, I, I definitely think it's relevant. I mean, I think it's, I mean, you can also, there's, you know, a lot going on in the Catholic church in the last decade yes, that, that this speaks to, um, but, or the church in general. But I, one of the things that I love about the Lieutenant, the, the, well, at least about the, um, the craftsmanship of what, what Green does with that Lieutenant is the way he's constantly actually associated with the church. Um, the way he, mm-hmm. moves, like it even says that so he does this thing he, he where Green does this thing where he's shifting from inside the in the same paragraph he'll be shifting from inside the head of the character to back to like a bird's eye you know omnipotent sort of point of view right so the first pair the first that there's a section break in chapter two there it's on page twenty four for me the lieutenant walked home through the shuttered town all his life had lain there the syndicate of workers and peasants had once been a school so you know you're getting this. The, the place is changing. He had helped to wipe out that unhappy memory, right? If you're not mm-hmm. careful, it can feel like he's you, you, you're you know you're not. It's not immediately clear how you're supposed to feel about the way he feels about things, right? Mm-hmm. The whole town was changed. The cement playground up the hill near the cemetery, where iron swings stood like gallows in the moony darkness, was the site of the cathedral. That's a haunting paragraph, right? Uh-huh. The yes, swings yes. being like gallows, and so the cemetery used to be a cathedral right the new children would have new memories nothing would ever be as it was and then he's so that's in his head right but then it switches out of his head this last sentence there was something of a priest in his intent observant walk a theologian going back over the errors of the past to destroy them again i mean that is a loaded paragraph given what we just heard just heard because we've we've shifted perspective and he's then the narrator our well our 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 whoever our storyteller is, is then making commentary, not only about the character, but about the way the character is thinking of things. And then also on the world itself. I mean, that is, that's a really complex bit of writing right there. And then later on, it talks about he, his place looks like a prison or a monastic cell. And then yeah. it talks about how he yeah. sits down upon his bed and begins to take off his boots. It was the hour of prayer. Black prayer. beetles exploded against the wall like crackers. More than a dozen crawled over the tiles with injured wings. It infuriated him to think that there were still people in the state who believed in a loving and merciful God. There, are, So that's in his head again, right? There are mystics who are said to have experienced God directly. He was a mystic too. And what he had experienced was vacancy, a complete certainty in the existence of a dying, cooling world of human beings who had evolved from animals for no purpose at all. He knew. And then it continues. Mm-hmm. I mean, the way he shifts the perspective there and the way, but the way that this this cynical, faithless, priest mm-hmm. or lieutenant is constantly associated with faithfulness with the church is compelling <laughs> it is compelling, it is yeah. interesting yes it, it is it, so compelling and it's what keeps this book from being propaganda right this man or, or pure believe- nihilism Yes, he is a believer in goodness. He believes what he's doing is righteous and good. And obviously something terrible happened to to him as a boy, something that never should have happened. He was abused. I mean, there's something horrible happened to him at the hands of the church. 
Yeah. And that he saw institutionalized within his culture. And that, that, that he sees as an evil to combat. And, and he's right. That mm. wasn't evil. Whatever happened was evil. Whatever happened mm -hmm. to him, we can make guesses and we're probably right. You know, again, there's so much decoding that we do in Graham Greene. He doesn't tell us the whole story, but what we're guessing is probably what really happened. So he was probably mm. abused by a priest in some way, maybe sexually, probably saw it happen to other children. You know, that's, it's not going too far to make to, when you're reading Greene to kind of read between the lines because there is so much subtext. So again, that's relevant to where we are now, what you brought up, David, in the life of the church. This goes on generation after generation. Is an institutionalized church a good thing or is it a bad thing for a culture? And that's a super important question. And this book takes it on. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I love the I love what you said about how he believes his cause is righteous. Yes. So what do you yeah, everything well, is, everything is framed by his history in the church it's like his mm -hmm. imagination is still um haunted it's like a metaphysical imagination and he's mm -hmm. just refurnishing that frame with a kind of vacancy with like the furniture of vacancy with the furniture of just strict a materialistic universe that has no meaning other than you know pleasure and pain mm-hmm yep Right. Well, and I think one of the most important things that this book does, and this make is it is the story of the family, and this is in chapter two as well, with uh, the young boy whose mother reads the idealized story of the saints, especially Juan, the priest who's martyred, and how the young boy rejects this um, over idealized sappy story of this saint. Uh, who couldn't possibly be a real person, you know, that's, that's within the subtext of the story too. And I think that's really important because green is taking on this idea that saints are not human, that martyrs are just idealized mythology. And that's one of the things that the Lieutenant is rejecting and that this ordinary family is Kind of weaving into the culture of their family and the young girls love that. And then the boy just rejects it outright. Yeah. And the Lieutenant says the best, speaking of martyrs, I guess the, he says the mm -hmm. best solution of all is to leave the living witness to the weakness of their faith. Mm -hmm. Showed the deception they had practiced all these years. For if they really believed in heaven or hell, they wouldn't mind a little pain now in return for what immensities. Mm. Right. The lieutenant lying on his bed in the dark, the damp, hot, dark, felt no sympathy at all with the weakness of the flesh. Yeah. So that idea of leaving the living witness to the weakness of their faith in juxtaposed with the, with the martyrs. And he, you know, Graham Greene was motivated to, one of the reasons he was motivated to write this book I've read is because he knew a priest who had, who had been executed, but who had been faithful in the face of that. Um, mm. and so part of it was, you know, the Catholic church got very angry about this book, actually. Um, the mm -hmm. Pope at the time of its publication was like, this is terrible. What are you thinking? But then later on, another Pope, the next Pope said, don't worry about what everyone thinks you're, this is the good fight. <laughs> um, yeah. but you know, well, I think we, I think he's trying to reveal in some ways, you know, what, what is the true witness? What is, what is a faithful witness look like? 
um, mm. to reveal a faithful witness is it's a lot easier. I mean, it's it's a lot easier to just tell a sort of saccharine story, right? But mm-hmm. a lot less powerful, also. Right. Yes. This is not as human. Like this is just a very. We can all put ourselves in the position of probably all of these characters at this point, maybe, maybe not to the extreme, but we can see ourselves in all of them. I can see myself in all of these characters, you know, the Lieutenant we can tell is going to be an antagonist, but he's a very human antagonist. He's not, um, you don't hate him. You see what he sees. Is this the difference between an antagonist and a villain? Yes. Is that a fair, would you agree with that, Tim? Would you say the Lieutenant's a villain? I don't know what the difference is. He's not That's a villain. How are you villain. Using yeah. <laughs> how, okay, so how, how do you what do you what do you see as a villain? Well, protagonist, well, as a villain. Okay, well, that's that's maybe a little bit more complicated. The difference I would say between a, an antagonist and a vil, and a villain is an antagonist is holding back the action of the story, right? And um, so I guess you an could. Yes, he's an obstacle to the point of the story, which at this point, we're, if we've only read, it's only chapters one and two that we've read at home, right? Yeah. So at this point, we don't know necessarily what the action of the story is. We're just becoming introduced mm-hmm. to the characters. Would you say that you would know just from chapters one and two what the action of the story is? I think it's there in the subtext. Right. I, mean, I think on like a first read, it'd be hard though, David. No, I, I'm not disagreeing yeah. with that at all. I'm just, I, I'm saying right. I think it's there, but it would you'd be yeah. hard to know. Yeah. Right. Well, a villain. I mean, and some some of what a villain is is in the emotional response of the reader. Like, if you strongly dislike this, there's no redeeming. Uh, there's nothing redeeming about this character, uh, or else the ca- the character has been offered redemption and rejects it. Mm-hmm. And um, that would be a villain. And none of that I see in the lieutenant thus far. And in fact, if I was a materialist reading this book, I wouldn't see him as negative at all. At all. Yeah. 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 I wonder if he's generally, I mean, he's generally considered the, he's, he's an adversary at least, right? He's the adversary. Right. For sure. Yeah. Right. Yes. But he's not a bad guy in the sense of he's, he's, he's just as human as Mr. Tench. Mr. Tench seems like an awful person too, right? Like, so there's none of these people are very sympathetic at this point. You can tell there's something different about the priest, but you can also tell he's a defeated man so far in his life, or at least from what we have seen of him so far. Yeah, Greek like doesn't none go- of these people are very sympathetic. You're not like, oh, I'm just like really on some so-and-so side. Exactly, yeah. He doesn't go out of his way to make you feel like the fact that somebody's trying to kill him is you know that terrible of a thing i mean it's a terrible thing but right. he doesn't go out of his way to make you feel much about that be in, in part in, you know like if you agree with the lieutenant if you also hate the church and think it's corrupt then he does he become the antagonist right. the antagonist sure so I mean, i'm not it, sure we're far enough in this story i mean we we know he's an antagonist but we don't know why necessarily yet. It's not just because of what he believes and the person, the personality that he's presented as having. Tim, who's your favorite character in this book? Mm. And it doesn't mean like the one you root for. I just mean who's the character that you find most compelling. 
at this point, it's the priest just because he's such a mystery. Well, but you've I mean, read. I mean, I'm even just asking from the perspective of you've read it three times. Oh, oh, oh! From the oh, it's the priest for sure. You're saying having read it. Yeah, yeah. Who do you look? Yeah, it's the priest for sure. Why? I mean, no. Can you can you can you say that without? I don't think I can say it without ruining the book. Okay, so people should be on the lookout for why the priest is Tim's favorite character. <laughs> How do you agree with that? Is he the most oh, compelling yes. character? Absolutely. Secondary characters, it's Coral Fellows, and we haven't met her yet. What a name. That is a Graham Greene name. It is. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yes, the priest by far. And I think I can say it. I've already said some of this is because he is just this very deep intermingling of suffering and love Mm. and that and and just this um and then just at the very human level if we're taking away from the ideological and looking at the human level it's just his his inner torment like awakens my compassion for him throughout the whole story regardless of whether or not the choices that he's making i think are morally good Mm. uh tim as we wrap up here what advice do you have or what should people kind of be looking out for, do you think, as we close the as, the, as they're reading for, as they're reading the next couple of chapters? I'm going to just say, because it's so important, the same thing that Heidi said at the beginning, don't give up. I mean, there's so many, we, we've, we do not choose easy books for close reads and mm-hmm. it's easy to get discouraged. <laughs> <laughs> And I that's fully why we do a understand every now and then, mm-hmm. right? 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 Yeah, to kind of, or yeah, or, right, or, to lighten or it or up like a, a little bit or something, you know. And so it's I killing a bunch of people on a train. I know murder is so much more lighthearted. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, but ahead. in all fairness, it. I mean, Murder on the Orient Express is an absolutely. It is a light, delightful, easy read, and you want to read to the end because you find out who done it. That's the whole point of it. This is one of those books that you will be disappointed in your, you you should be disappointed if you don't read all the way to the end, even though it's a struggle. Mm -hmm. And I can't say that of all the books that we've read. Like I loved Gilead, but I didn't feel like if we didn't, if you didn't make it to the end, um, you would be depriving yourself of a profound reading experience. Because I feel like there's there's a this is critical of Gilead. It doesn't feel to me like the resolution of the end of that book provides the sort of resolution that the power and the glory for me is exemplary at. Gosh, that was a poorly constructed sentence. Read all the way to the end is the <laughs> bottom line. The Read block. all the way to the end. I forgot. <laughs> I forgot a whole just normal everyday word for like 20 minutes there. So <laughs> maybe you caught it from me, David. Maybe we are whatever illness it is that we have is, is commingling across the airwaves. Yeah, it's possible. I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> I, I couldn't remember the word claustrophobic. Um, <laughs> this is this in my defense, this is a very small studio. It's a, feeling a little bit tight. So you're a little claustrophobic. The word, yeah, the word got squeezed mm-hmm. out of me. Um, yeah. Well, all right. Final thoughts. Is there anything else you guys want to add? Yeah. I 
I want to add, look for coded messages of hope throughout this novel, not just from the protagonist, not just from the priest, but all of the characters. Don't give up on any of the characters. Hmm. Never. Like, And you're going to meet some people that you're not going to like. I don't like them either, but don't give up on them. That is hmm. what suffering in love does. It doesn't give up. And so these characters are, let's look for those coded. Everything that Grand Green does is coded. There's a lot of subtext. We've established that. So look for hope. Don't just look for degradation. That's going to be on the surface. You're going to have to yeah. look for the hope. Tim? Um, read to the end. <laughs> Just you want to say it one more time, just to make sure. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks to you both for joining me on this. I'm excited to talk about this book further with each of you. Next week, we will discuss uh, chapters three and four of, uh, well, chapters three or four of part one. So we'll be ready for that. Don't forget about the plays, the thing. Uh, we are starting uh, much ado about nothing this week. So we're going to record uh, act our discussion of Act One, and that's with uh, Andrew Kerr and Angelina Stanford. So that'll be a lively discussion, I'm sure. Um, there's lots of movie versions out there as well. Um, although I should recommend that if you're watching the Kenneth Branagh one, you do keep your remote handy because there is a scene that you may want to be prepared to skip if you're watching with younger children. Thanks also, of course, to Belmont Abbey College for sponsoring. If you want to learn more about them, head over to belmontabbeycollege.edu slash greatbooks to learn about their honors college. For Tim McIntosh, for Heidi White and for all of us here at the Close Reads Podcast Network. Thank you so much for listening. Happy reading and we'll talk to you next week.